tonight we're going to spend most of our time in the 11th chapter of Revelation, but before we get there, we just want to give an overall view again to bring our minds up to that particular point. We've already established on the basis of, basis of the evidence that we've looked at so far, the dating of this book as being the fourth that struck from Jerusalem in 70 AD. We've also looked at the New Testament in the Gospels and in the letters and have found that all of the books up through the book of Revelation point to a judgment that was near at hand and in that generation. Uh, we looked at the Lord and noticed in the ministry that, that his persecution came from the Jews, and that all through history there had been Jews that had fought the will of God and put to death the prophets. But Jesus, right before they crucified, in seeking that Jerusalem, uh, tells them how he would have liked to have gathered them and had them as his people, but it was just simply not their will. And he told them the end result was that with the coming of the new dispensation or the new covenant, that the old was going to pass away. In the process of the old passing away, we would have a situation in which Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and Judaism as a nation would fall. And he made that observation in the latter part of the 23rd chapter of Matthew and said, uh, the blood of all the righteous people that had been shed on earth would be required of that generation. We moved into the letters, first the book of Acts, and we saw in the history of the church, the book of Acts, that we have a situation that all the way through that early history, the persecution of Christianity is by Jews. And it's Jews trying to stamp out Christianity, Jews trying to pursue the apostles and take their life and shut them up. And even when we have Rome involved in the process, it's Rome being used by Israel. And we end the book of Acts with the Jews as the part the number one persecuting force against Christianity. We end the book of Acts with Paul actually in a Roman jail as a result of the Jews. We leave the book of Acts we come into the letters of the New Testament. In each of these letters, the apostles deal with whatever problem that the specific churches were involved in. But along with dealing with that problem, there is this constant mention, mentioning of this judgment day to come. Uh, something, some statements about the trials and tribulations of the early Christians and the fact that God was coming in judgment on those persecuting forces. We noted as we get down towards the latter end of that dispensation that those books that are written in the 60s have such statements as the time is at hand for the last last day. Be patient. You know, the Lord is at hand. The judgment is at hand. Uh, it's now time for judgment to begin in the house of God. But a little while he that cometh will come and will not delay. And so we have these statements as we come into Revelation. And so Revelation actually takes up exactly where everything else is left off. And what we did in our overview of the book itself is to note that the book itself tells you that the judgment it is talking about is coming about very shortly. And we noted in the first chapter, it tells you the time is at hand. Uh, these things are going to speedily take place. Uh, Revelation 10, those same statements in the 22nd chapter, the time is at hand. These things are going to speedily take place. And then in between there, we have this imminent persecuting force. We have them referred to as the synagogue of Satan that says they're Jews, but in reality they're not. Revelation 2, 
first time. We also noted from internal evidences that at the time that this is taking place in Revelation, the temple is still standing, the city is still standing. Uh, we noted a contrast that we have a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and that you can only have a new Jerusalem in contrast with an old Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem was fleshly Jerusalem, and it was going to be destroyed. And then the new Jerusalem, or spiritual Jerusalem, came down out of heaven. Now, what I'd like to do is just in a few statements in Revelation 1, in Revelation 7, Revelation 9, uh, point out a few uh, things that we've already looked at. A couple of them we have, a couple of them we have not. And then get into the 11th chapter. First, turn over to Revelation 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, verse 7. Note the statement there. Speaking of the judgment situation, you have, Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all the peoples of the earth were born because of him, so shall it ever be. Okay, now, we've noted, and I'll give you the passage, and, and this is here, you can turn back on your own and, and read, and the second one we'll turn over and look at. Where it says, look, he's coming with the clouds. This is a figure of speech that is used in a consistent way that simply has reference to God coming swiftly, or in a quick way. And a good example that you might, if you're keeping notes, put down is Isaiah 19, verse 1. When God is speaking in covenant judgment against Egypt over there, he spoke of himself as coming on the clouds. And it simply was understood by them as a figure of speech of God traveling swiftly. We noted that in contrast with the pagan idols who traveled on the back of donkeys or were pulled or carried and moved in a very slow way, uh, the creator of the universe traveled very quickly, and so the terms, he's coming on the cloud. Now, hold your place there. Flip over here to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and look at verse 30. Now, while you're looking at this, Matthew 24 and verse 30, look again at Revelation 1, verse 7. He's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierce him, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Look at this in 24 and verse uh, 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Okay? And all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay? And he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they shall gather his elect. Okay, now I come right on down and note the context. Verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now come over here again in Revelation and look at 1 and 1. These things must soon take place. Over in Matthew, Jesus was saying this generation will not pass away until these take place. Now he's saying these things must soon take place. He uses the same type of language. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Those who pierce him, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it ever be. So you can see that, again, even the Satan grabs your attention as something that ties into the first century. There in the first century, they pierced Jesus. They put Jesus to death. Uh, there was mourning that was to take place all over as a result of the destruction that would come on Jerusalem. Okay? All of this now, tying in with the same statements, 
the Lord made in Matthew 24 and verse 30. Now, look at Revelation 7 and verse 14. 7 and 14. These are they that come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Hold your place there and turn over to Matthew 24 and 21. Right back here. Matthew 24 and verse 21. Okay, look at the statement. There will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world unto now, never to be equaled again. And so we have this great tribulation there where they were to be suffered, and something he said in all their history was never to be equaled again. The same, same type of language, same type of persecution. And then the statement over here that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, now, let's see, come on over to Revelation 9 and 4 and 7 and 3. Look at 7 and 3 and then 9 and 4. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until I put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Okay, and then come over to 9 and 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the, the seal of God on their forehead. Okay, now, we won't turn over here because we've already studied it, but you can make note and turn back into Rome. The comments you have here, you find that exact statement is equal 9 and verse 4, where we have the people of God, in a figurative sense, marked on their forehead. And we noted that over there, Ezekiel was talking about the same thing the Revelation writer is. Uh, in Ezekiel, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And in 586, Jerusalem would fall. And so there the statement was made that as Jerusalem was be, to be destroyed, that the people of God would be marked on the forehead, that God was going to take care of providentially his people. And so we have over here this great judgment is coming, but then the same kind of statement. The people of God are to be marked on their forehead. And what we've already studied is the way that God will take care of his people in each instant is through information. And those that believe the information would be taken care of. Uh, for example, with back in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel and Jeremiah were preaching, they told the people that you don't stand a chance against the Babylonians. It's God's will that Babylon conquer this city. The thing to do if you want to leave is surrender to the king of Babylon and go into captivity. And they told them that God would not wipe out the entire people, that he would save a remnant and they would come back home. Those people that believed the preaching of the prophet did exactly that. Those that were convinced it was going to be that way went ahead and surrendered, went into, went into captivity, and then from their seed, children would come back. Over here, the same thing happens. Uh, the apostles and prophets have given information, and they have told the people in the words of Jesus that when you see Jerusalem surrounded, uh, know that her desolation is not. Uh, Jesus had said that when you see all this happen, know that it's like Daniel prophesied, the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24 and verse 15, and he quotes Daniel in a prophetic utterance of this. And so now, with all of this about to take place on Jerusalem, the Christians, those who believe the teaching of Jesus, the preaching of the apostles, would be taken care of by God through their faith in his word. And so when the destruction became imminent, they would do what the Lord said. Those that were out in the fields wouldn't even come into the city. They'd get out of there. Those that were up on the housetop would 
events that took place and his capture and taking the city, he even makes mention in his own writings of the fact that the Christians left and escaped the Pella. Josephus also points out the Christians escaped the Pella. Other sources point this out going back at this time. And only the unbelievers, what I mean now, un of the unbeliever, I don't mean those that disbelieve in just God, but the unbelievers are those who do not believe in Jesus. In fact, something is going to happen now with the coming of Christianity. Unbelief in Jesus is going to become synonymous with unbelief in God. Uh, just like Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To reject me is to reject the Father. And all the New Testament writers are going to make it clear. There is no way that you can have God and not have Christ. That he pictures the Father to us. We come to the Father through him. There is no way, there is no relationship to the Father or with the Father except in Jesus. Okay, so these people are marked. We have that same kind of language. Now, let's come on over to the 11th chapter. And as we go through, we have these seven angels that have sounded their trumpet. And then there are the various types of disaster have taken place as a result of this. The seven is the perfect number. It culminates the desolation and the destruction that takes place. And so what we're going to have now in the 11th chapter is on the one hand, there are going to be the prophets of God that are witnessing for God and preaching. We're going to see them turned on and destroyed. The people of God suffer. And then we're going to see a force rise up against this persecuting force, and they're going to win out. And then we're going to see the kingdom of God will as a result go and spread into the entire world. So let's go now and look at this the 11th chapter now, keeping in mind everything that we've said thus far. I was given a read like a measuring rod. It was told, go and measure the temple of God, <coughs> pardon me, and the altar, and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will travel on the holy city for 42 months. I will give power to the two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands. In other words, two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands. This is all referred to the same day. That stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it would not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters to blood and to strike the earth every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, notice now what happens? God's witnesses are prophesying of this impending doom and of the disaster that's coming. And during this allotted period of time, they have God's providential care. Nothing is going to stop them. But then, notice what happens when they finish with their testimony. They have completed the task. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the Abus will attack them and overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men of every people, tribe, and language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Notice now, these two prophets are the ones seeking out 
the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and played glory to the God of heaven. The second war is past. The third war is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, Notice now, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of the covenant. And there came flashes of light and drumlets and bills of, of thunder and earthquake and great hailstorm. Okay, now let's go back and look, starting at the first part of this. We have a seen the temple, the altar, measuring, and then a statement is made there. It has been given to the Gentiles that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Alright, now remember we already pointed out here that Josephus records and other historical records, I'm simply using Josephus, that the war with Israel, between Rome and Israel, was 42 months, about three and a half years. In fact, uh, let's see, the date I've got here is February 67 until August 70. From February 67 to August 70. And the siege that it ended in August 70, this is according to Josephus, ended with the fall of Jerusalem, the temple of the Holy City. Okay, so we have a statement here that we go back and we look at, and historically, we can actually see that the Holy City fell after a period of three and a half years. All right, now, what happens though, during this period of time? I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1260 days. It's as if he's emphasizing this, for this same period of time because if you multiply 42 times 30, you come out to 1260 days. And so there again, you have the same period of three and, a, three and a half years. So during this period of time, while the Holy City is in the process of being under siege, and it's going to be trampled under by the feet of the Gentiles and all, God had his witnesses prophesying. Well, remember, all during this period of time, the apostles and prophets were prophesying concerning the fall of that city and what was going to happen. Now, so far as the two witnesses there, it's interesting to me that uh, Wallace believed the two there referred to the apostles of the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament. He pointed out, for example, that it was a Jewish principle of law that the state of Georgia, one example, Deuteronomy 19.15, that truth is established on the basis of two or three witnesses. Uh, remember Jesus pointing that out in his preaching when they asked him who he was and he pointed out that his, his message was established on the basis of two or more witnesses. Uh, this is a principle that's found all through the New Testament and receiving an accusation against somebody. And so what we have is the prophets of the Old Testament have prophesied this. Remember Jesus called on Daniel and so these are the days that Daniel spoke of, the abomination of desolation. Then Jesus sent the apostles out. So all the time that this is in the process of happening, you've got the apostles 
using the prophets of the Old Testament and then preaching the message of Jesus, telling these people what's going to happen. The city is going to fall. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be fixed so that not one stone will be left standing on another. You people need to repent and believe the good news. The Messiah is here. The, the kingdom that's come is not a physical kingdom. It's not a fleshly kingdom. The new Jerusalem is the one that comes down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem is not one that is lit with a literal sun like that we have. The new Jerusalem has the Son of God, and the light is a spiritual light. And so all of these things of the physical nature were going to be replaced by something of a spiritual nature. Right, so the pictures have prophesied during this whole period of time. Notice now the next statement. They're clothed in sackcloth. Okay, sackcloth is simply to the Jewish mind, yet you and I read that and say, what in the world are they doing sackcloth on? To the Jewish mind, he identified that with mourning and calamities. A good example is Job 16, 15, and 16. That when Job was undergoing all his calamities, he clothed himself in sackcloth. Over and over in the Old Testament, you could read of individuals that when a calamity came on them or a calamity was coming on the city or they were mourning because of sin, that they would clothe themselves in sackcloth and mourn. And so here are the two witnesses now. These are the ones speaking out on behalf of God. They're pictured as clothed in sackcloth. They're in a state of mourning. They don't want this to happen. They want these people to save themselves from the calamities. They're clothed in two olive trees, the two lampstands. Again, both of these, he identifies as himself, referring to the witnesses. They were the lights of that day. They were the peacemakers. They were the ones that should have been listened to. All right, they stand before the Lord of the earth. Notice if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes down from the mouth and devours them. Uh, figurative language, again, that remember what Jesus said to the apostles when he sent them out. And he said, not a hair of your head would perish. And they were going out, and, and he pointed out that he was going to take care of them. And they didn't have to fear anything, that he was going to be with them. He also told them that they wouldn't even have to think before they talked, that the Holy Spirit would give them utterance, and the Holy Spirit would speak through them. And so as the apostles went out and gave that testimony, they had the promise of the Lord that the Holy Spirit is going with you, through miracles, he's going to confirm your word. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. You won't even have to ponder as to what is the best statement for these people. But the Holy Spirit will speak through you. And so they go out and they speak in that way. They have been promised God's providential care. But I was back up again. On the one hand, they have been promised God's providential hair. God's providential care. He said, not even a hair of your head would be perished. You don't have to worry. But then on the other hand, what did he tell them? It totally be killed. On the one hand, you've got God's providential care. And you're going to give this message that I've given you to give. But then he let them know you're going to die. And remember how the John records that Jesus talked to Peter. And he told Peter the kind of violent death that he was going to die. And then we come to the book of Acts. And right away we can see James first going to his death. We leave the Bible and go to secular history. And we have the record of the death of all of the apostles in a violent way except for John. And the indication of Jesus is that John would be the one that would live to see these living. He didn't say it plainly. But the indication that he gave, in fact, Peter actually misunderstood him and thought he meant that John was going to live forever on this earth. But Jesus definitely indicated, and 
it's interesting that from a historical standpoint, John was the one that lived through all of these events. The other apostles all went to their death. But what we see happening here, the same thing that we have pictured here, the witnesses of God, those prophesied during this period of time, in a state of mourning, warning the people of the calamities to come, God providentially caring for them, but then, once their testimony is finished, they go to their death. The same thing happened to Jesus. Uh, if you go back and read the 7th and 8th chapter of the book of John, and you'll find on three different occasions they try to kill Jesus, and you have that statement, but his time had not yet come. God was still providentially looking out for him and caring for him. And then after that three and a half years, God would step back and simply allow them to do what they wanted to do all the time. But he had God's special providential care. The same with the witnesses here. Until they accomplished the mission of God, they had God's providential care. You see the same thought carried forth in Paul. Uh, one time he writes, and he's in jail, but he knows he's going to get out of jail. Uh, he writes and he says that I'd rather go ahead and die, be with the Lord. But he knew he wasn't right then. He says, I'm persuaded that he wants me to stay around, even though I'd rather go ahead and, and be with him. Then we come to Paul's last letter as he writes to Timothy. And now Paul, as he's there before Nero, is making the statement, the time of my departure has come. I, I know it's here. And then he went on to say how ready he was to go and be with the Lord. And so Paul, on the one hand, knew, and you see that confidence that I'm going to be here for as long as the Lord wants me here to accomplish whatever the Lord wants me to accomplish. Paul reached the point where he had accomplished his ministry, then God allowed his life to be taken. Okay, now, come on down, let's see. Uh, God's providential care, depicted in the figurative language there, and then when he says they had power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, what does that remind you of as you read those statements? Okay. When God was uh, uh, wanting his people who were being persecuted in Egypt turn loose, uh, then you have those miraculous, the water turned to blood, the things happening, just as mentioning right here. And so again, when he speaks of this, he simply doesn't know God's power is with his apostles. And just as Moses was using miraculous signs to confirm the message all the time that Pharaoh was persecuting and making life tougher, tougher, what are the apostles doing? Say no, darling. All the time that they're being persecuted, they're being persecuted, there, there is a witness of the Holy Spirit through them, and they're constantly performing these miracles, confirming the message itself. And so God's people being persecuted, but in the same way that you have the, the kind of language that God over here confirmed his message with miraculous things, took care of Moses, in the same way that God is confirming all the time Christians are suffering, God is confirming his message with miracles, and eventually will deliver them. Okay, now, just about in this square there. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men of every people and tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bear them. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. All right, now, 
Something interesting happens. Just as John is writing Revelation during this period of time, we have the apostles preaching, and we have the Jews fighting them to the death, and we have God confirming with miracles. We have the apostles giving their testimony and also use the prophets of the Old, Old Testament. Then something else happens. What happens? About 64 AD. Nero comes. Okay. Nero. Now, before we get through here, we're going to run in again to the 13th chapter, this beast. And remember, we're going to see also that using a beast, or the term beast, to depict an emperor or an ungodly force is common with the Bible. And remember over in the Old Testament, how the, the leper depicted uh, Greece. Uh, remember how the lion was used to depict, and other apples used to depict. Remember how the bear was used. Remember how the ram with two horns was used. And then remember how that Rome was depicted as this great beast that was more terrible than all of them. And so now this beast rises up, and we want to watch that beast because let's see something here. On the one hand, the beast turns against the people of God. And as a result of all the persecution that comes on the people of God, apostles go to their death. The apostle Paul will go to his death under Nero. There's all kinds of rejoicing by the Jews. They love it. But what's going to happen? The beast is going to turn on Israel. And the same beast that silenced the apostles after they had finished their stage, the same beast that was a persecuting force against the church, and, and we can only guess at how many thousands went to their death, then he would turn on the very people that were laughing and gloating and mocking over what had happened. And so, when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the Abus, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the great city, no problem there, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Hold your place here. Flip over to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. And we could, there's others. This makes a good one, I think. Jeremiah 23. And let's see. Right on down to verse uh, 14. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns wickedness. Notice now, they are like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. Now, we can turn to other places. Last week, we chose a place in Isaiah. Suffice it to say, when God's people became wicked, and he was going to judge them, to refer to them as Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom, like Isaiah would say, ye people of Sodom, ye people of Gomorrah, this is very common. And so when John writes Revelation, keep in mind, this is the same John who is well studying the Old Testament scriptures, right in the same people that are familiar with all these symbols, and he simply uses that same type of terminology. The people of Sodom, the people of Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified, and then, again, Egypt, the same thing, an ungodly people that God had judged. Then for men from every tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burials, and the inhabitants of the earth will glow over them and celebrate by singing to each other because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on 
the apostles say it's going to win that war? They're saying wrong is. Just like, remember how they uh, got so disturbed at Jeremiah because he kept telling the people, remember how the king shut him up and put him in jail because he said he was disheartening the people. He kept telling them that the other side was going to win. And so, and called, tell them they were sinners. Well, all during this period of time, you've got the apostles preaching just exactly what you and I read in the book of Acts. They're, you, people of Israel, you crucified the Messiah. You killed the Christ. You killed the one that God had promised you. You murdered. You may have done it in but you still did it. Now, your house is left to you desolate. God is going to judge you. Repent. And believe the good news. And then all the time, here, here's, here's Rome, and, and Israel is gathering their forces to fight, and you've got the zealots, who are a religious group there that believe that Israel was going to rise up, and they were going to win out and break the yoke of Rome, and the Messiah would reign on earth from there. And they're going out preaching to the people that we need to hang tough and fight. We're going to win. God is on our side. Josephus records the preaching of the zealots, their influence on the people, how that the zealots, as Brother Sherwood brought out a few weeks back, the Jewish zealots from within the city of Jerusalem, Josephus says they killed him before the end again. Now, he may have exaggerated a little bit. By the way, that was one characteristic of Josephus. He did tend to exaggerate a little bit. And, but anyway, suffice, suffice to say that zealots were killing their own people. Well, during this period of time, here you are a devout Jew. You're suffering too. You're at war with Rome. Anytime you go to war, you suffer. And all the time, here you've got the witnesses of God. Here you've got the apostles out there and the prophets. And they're saying that you're teaching something false. You're misleading the people. And they're telling the people, Rome is going to win. Rome's going to destroy your city. Rome's going to destroy the temple. Jesus is the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. And so all of this incurred the hatred of people. In fact, I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate the position of these people until you actually have the experience of condemning some wrong things that people really and truly want to do and really want to believe they're right in, and then you incur the wrath from that kind of thing. And so they're out preaching to the Jews, and they're incurring the wrath, and so then when Rome turns on them, they rejoice, just as happy as two bees in a pod. Okay, now they tormented them, but now it says after three and a half death days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Terror struck those who saw them. And I'm in verse 11. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, "Come up here!" And they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. All right, what does John see? They've been put to death. The witnesses of God. And those that are the persecutors of the church have rejoiced. The beast has put them to death. The beast is persecuting the Christians. They're rejoicing. But what happens? John in the vision sees that these witnesses are called up to heaven. Remember, we've already read over in the sixth chapter about the souls of those that were beheaded for the cause of Christ and how that he makes the statement they are waiting for vengeance to be taken on them. And he makes the statement to them that no support you're going to have to die yet. 
And so we have John seeing stuff. And again, this is just what John is seeing in the vision. John sees uh, the people have been put to death. Then he sees them caught up to heaven. And then what happens when they're caught up to heaven? He says, after three and a half days of breath of life from God enters them, they stood on their feet, terror struck those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. So these people are caught up into heaven. That's what John sees. But their enemies look on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. And so what does John see now? After he sees the witnesses of God put to death, and all of these people rejoicing, then all of a sudden he sees them caught up into heaven, and they're given life. But then they're glorified. Everything they said about Jerusalem is now coming to pass. And so now we're ready for this last woe. And it comes on the city. And then John sees the collapse of that city, the punishment, the fulfillment of all that the apostles and prophets have written, just as Jesus said. The abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of, that Jesus quoted in Matthew 24 and verse 15. Now, what happens? The destruction of the city, the downfall of the persecuting force, and then let's go to verse 15. The seventh angel sounded the trumpet. We, get, we come to the completion now. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Notice, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. He's not talking about, in this past, heaven yet to come, but right here on this earth, Remember, Daniel had prophesied that we had this beast, and there was a head of gold, there was a silver, there was a bronze, there was the iron, and it represented Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then he saw a little rock cut off, and the little rock got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it smoked that image, and all of it collapsed, and then what happened? It encompassed the earth. And the kingdom of God became worldwide. All right, now, we have the same thing here. The judgment situation takes place. And then from that, we have God's kingdom going worldwide. All right, again, if you and I look at it from a standpoint of the sheer historical fact, up until the downfall of Judaism in 70 AD, Christianity was just simply a little wayward sect within Judaism. It was not the worldwide religion that it is today. It had been preached to the entire world in the sense that it had been preached to all the Jews who were scattered throughout all those places. And the other Gentiles they had come in contact with, it had not literally gone into the whole world. It had been preached in the known area primarily to the Jews of that day, and those Jews of that generation had the opportunity to repent and obey the gospel. It was looked on by Rome as a little sect within Judaism. We saw through the book of Acts that when Rome persecuted the church or, or stood up for the Jews, it was because they represented the majority. And Rome just simply wanted their taxes and they wanted peace. And the Christians were a little sect within Judaism. But now what happens after 70 AD? Jerusalem falls. You know what happens to the Jewish people? 
disdain by law. What does one country feel for another one after they've just been at war with them for a period of years and you've lost thousands of your own people in that war and now you've defeated them? What do you feel for that people? All, all through history, there's disdain. And so the end result of this war was not just the destruction of Jerusalem, not just the downfall of the temple, but Rome absolutely despises the Jews. And there will be a continuation of persecution of Jews all over. Well, something else happens. Christianity comes out of this. And because there is that despising of the Jews by the Romans, for the first time now, Christianity begins to exert itself as something other than a Jewish institution. Christianity begins to separate itself from Judaism. They begin to make it clear that they are not the Jews of the Old Testament. They begin to make it clear that they have a new covenant, a new agreement with God. And all of these things that had caused Rome to hate the Jews was not a part of them. And then we see them take this message, and we just take, follow them historically, and we see them literally eat up the Roman world. And by the time we come to the 4th century, Christianity has become the official religion in the Roman Empire. And from that point it goes, and we have Christianity literally encompassing the world at this present time. So he depicts that through here. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdoms of the Father. And then come on down to verse, let's see, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now, when he speaks of the time of his wrath, Hold your place right here. Let's see, is my bench look like? I'm looking at the clock up there. I thought I could squeeze this in. That has uh, a clock for national. <laughs> <laughs> that just shows you how engulfed in this I was. I looked down here and I said, it's 10 after 8. And it was just barely 7 o'clock. You know? <laughs> but anyway, I thought, surely we could squeeze this last point in here. I knew I was going to be pushed to get all that. He's looking for God. 